You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, episode number 708. Do or do not. There is no try. Yoda. Broadcasting from the back alley in Hollywood, it's the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, where we show you how to survive and thrive as an indie filmmaker in the jungles of the film biz. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Indie Film Hustle Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Today's show is sponsored by Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, how to turn your independent film into a profitable business. It's harder today than ever before for independent filmmakers to make money with their films. From predatory film distributors ripping them off to huckster film aggregators who prey upon them, the odds are stacked against the indie filmmaker. The old distribution model of making money with your film is broken and there needs to be a change. The future of independent filmmaking is the entrepreneurial filmmaker or the film entrepreneur. In Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, I break down how to actually make money with your film projects and show you how to turn your indie film into a profitable business. With case studies examining successes and failures, this book shows you the step-by-step method to turn your passion into a profitable career. If you're making a feature film, series, or any other kind of video content, the Film Entrepreneur method will set you up for success. The book is available in paperback, ebook, and of course, audiobook. If you want to order it, just head over to www.filmbizbook.com. That's filmbizbook.com. Enjoy today's episode with guest host, Dave Bullis. Joining me tonight is Alvaro Rodriguez. Alvaro is a screenwriter who is currently working on season two of From Dust Till Dawn, the series. Uh, his career in film actually began when he began riffing on a uh, Spanish guitar for the hero's musical theme in his cousin Robert Rodriguez's debut film, Aramaliachi, which began a collaboration that has lasted over two decades. Alvaro, how are you, sir? I'm doing great. How are you? Pretty good. It's, uh, the weather in PA has gotten a lot better over the past few days. That's good. Same here in Austin. (laughs) Oh, nice. Um, You know, I actually want to talk to you about Austin, but before I get to that, um, so could you give us a little more detail about your background, you know, and how, you know, every, how you got started in the uh, film business? Sure. Uh, Well, you know, I I grew up with a love for movies and I grew up with a love for reading and writing and always wanted to be a novelist and would, you know, say, well, I know it's a hard road to to try to, to do, and, uh, you know, I'll probably end up being a teacher, which I was for a time. Uh, but I want to, you know, keep writing. Uh, but I had this cousin, Robert, who, you know, when I first remember spending any time with him, we were kids at my grandmother's house in, in South Texas, sitting in the back of a truck. And he was talking about this new movie that had just come out, which she hadn't seen yet, but seemed to know everything about how the director had done this shot and how this was done and all this stuff. And my jaw was just on the floor of the bed of the truck because I realized I finally found someone who loved movies maybe more than I did. And that movie was called Escape from New York, John Carpenter's movie in the early 80s. And, uh, and it was just like, a, you know, a light had gone off in my head. I was probably in the fifth grade or so, and I started to write my first little scripts. I'd written a parody of the TV show Dallas and, and just thought, you know, this is great. I'm going to write the scripts. Robert will direct them. And his sister Angela, his older sister and my older cousin, she'll star in them. She wanted to be an actress. And it actually did happen. I mean, she, she became an actress. She was in uh, several movies and, and 
including the movie that I wrote with Robert called Shorts. So, um, you know, it was, it was amazing. It was amazing to see that all finally kind of come come true. Uh, but, and then, you know, later on, uh, I, I did music for his first show on Mariachi, like you mentioned. And right after that, we started collaborating on a script together, uh, which never got made, called Till Death Was Part, which we wrote for uh, an actress that Robert had met and thought was going to be the next big thing, and she was Salma Hayek. Um, and, uh, and ever since then, I just, you know, was writing, uh, on different projects with him, um, you know, contributing scenes or dialogue or, or ideas, including movies like Four Looms and Road Racers and then later Planet Terror. And, uh, then we wrote Shorts and, and Machete together. Um, so, you know, and then, you know, where did, you know, and uh, well, actually, you know, I'll get to that later from Dust Till Dawn, because um, I don't want to get, you know, too far ahead. But, I mean, that's sure. absolutely amazing, you know, um, you know, that you know, you're able to collaborate with a family member, and it was so amazing he's able to open all these doors for you. And, you know, that, I mean, you know, and that's, you know, a couple of those things I want to touch on. Um, so, just really quickly, um, are you at the South by Southwest Festival right now? I am indeed. Yeah, we're shooting. We're shooting my episode of uh, Dustal Dawn, second season, second episode right now, and uh, this happened to coincide with South by Southwest Festival. So, um, been able to go and uh, you know do some screenings and and uh, you know some networking and stuff like that. It's been fantastic. So, are you filming this series in Austin then? Yeah, the entire show shoots in and around Austin. Oh, so, uh, Rob, Robert has his own studio, Troublemaker Studios, where he shot many of the films uh, and here in Austin, which is right next to Austin Studios, where we also have sets. And uh, we're shooting in and around town, different locations. Uh, Machete was shot entirely here in Austin, too, uh, on those sets and uh, on those stages and in and around town. So it's it's amazing. It's amazing to to be able to have that kind of uh, those kind of facilities and, and just a great crew, uh, and great people that that uh, you know that Robert uses uh, again and again on all these different projects. So it makes our you know our little TV show look like a like a you know big feature project. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, that's amazing to be able to work with the same crew and everything over and over. Um, you know, that that is a great benefit, and also it's great that you know he has his own studio right there in Austin. Um, you know, the reason I asked where your shooting it was because you know, with all these film tax credits and that, there's a you know the debate about you know do they work, do they not work? You know, I know sometimes you get thrown through a loop. You know, so we know um, like season one of Banshee was filmed in North, South or North Carolina, and season mm-hmm. two was actually filming here in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Well, I mean, Austin is Austin has really become over the last couple of decades, you know, quite a, a film and television production hub. You know, um, this new series on ABC, American Crime, takes place in the best of California, but was shot entirely in Austin. Uh, hopefully, they'll be back for season two. Uh, and uh, you know, it's 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 really amazing that that. Uh, that Austin, you know, it just has developed a, a really strong reputation for film and television. A lot of people want to be here. Uh, you know, we had guys on, in our uh, in our cast that have, you know, bought places here, and you know, are are uh, and I've heard the same stories from other from other 
crew members on other projects that they worked on and from other people that, you know, Austin is a place where, you know, actors want to come and they want to work there because they have such a good time uh, in the city and, and uh, the city is very open to, to all those kinds of things. So it's a great creative, uh, creative nexus here in Austin. Yeah, I've always heard that, and I've always heard that slogan, keep Austin weird. Yeah. <laughs> so you well, know, we're, we're doing our part. We're doing our part to keep it weird. <laughs> uh, so, you know, so you know, what's one of the coolest things that you have seen thus far at the South by Southwest Festival? Well, last night I went to a screening uh, that was touted as the 30th, I think the 30th or so anniversary screening of The Road Warrior with George Miller director in, in attendance and uh, we got to see uh, kind of a sneak uh, after the film of the new um, Fury Road, the new Mad Max film. Uh, we got to see about seven or eight minutes of that and then a special trailer that was just cut for South by Southwest and Warner Brothers uh, had uh, struck a, a brand new print of the film. So it just it looked absolutely amazing and of course Road Warrior is such a huge influence on both Robert and myself and uh, Robert actually got to uh, to do a, uh, a an episode of his series on El Rey called the Director's Chair, where he you know interviews different directors. He just aired the, the latest one uh, uh, about a week or so ago with uh, Francis Ford Coppola. So he got to film an episode with George Miller, and uh, you know it's just it's just amazing to to see to see something like that in 35 millimeter. I think it was, they said is the only film at South by Southwest that was screening in 35 millimeter uh, on the big screen in, uh, in a beautiful theater downtown, Austin, the Paramount, which is celebrating its 100th anniversary this year. So it's just like, you know, that's, it's a really amazing and kind of priceless experience uh, to, to see something like that. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Yeah, I mean, I know you can't uh, you know, uh, go into detail, but you know, um, you know, what did you think of, of the couple of minutes of the new uh, of the new Man Max? You're allowed to say. Yeah, it was amazing. It was really amazing. I mean, it, it, it was such a. It was, it was such a tease. It was, it was, it was like, please give us more, please give us more, you know, because it, it, it just, it looks beautiful. And it, and I'm Hardy, Tom Hardy, who plays Man Max, looks fantastic. Charlize Theron, the entire cast, it, it just has, uh, it, it looks like Road Warrior, you know, turned up to 11 and, you know, Thunderdome, everything in plus. It's just, it's, I can't wait to see it. Opens May fifteenth, and it just looks absolutely amazing. For you know, fans of that of that kind of film, I can't imagine that anybody's really going to be disappointed. Uh, it just it looks it, it looks stellar. I, I couldn't wait to see it after that taste of it last night. And, and that's good to hear, coming from an actual fan of the original as well. Um, you know, because. Uh, you know, with the you know the, the sort of the the trends you see now in, in film is you know there's a lot of remakes, there's a lot of you know old you know properties, established properties that are getting you know made uh, updated like uh, you know the minute or even TV shows, but you know it's good that there are you know um, personally like. Um, uh, 21 Jump Street. I thought that was absolutely right. hilarious. Like, you know what? I, I mean, I went in there with almost no expectations and I came out and I said, wow, that was actually pretty damn good. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's the thing, you know, the re- remakes and reboots and reimaginings often get 
you know, short shrift and, and people say, you know, there's no more reason why I do it. Well, you know, um, just because the Coen brothers made True Grit doesn't erase the first film, you know, doesn't erase the original. And a lot of things, you know, writing and, and entertainment and, and stories are, are it's such a, it, it's already inherently a system of recycling, you know, it's a system of, of, uh, of taking something old and giving it a new spin in some way. And obviously you can fall on that as a crutch, but I think when you have talent uh, uh, and, uh, and this will to sort of like make something better or, or make something with your own touch and you have someone like George Miller who you know at the helm of, of, of taking Mad Max and, and doing the reimagining or reboot or whatever you want to call it um, that you know you're in the hands of a master and uh, and there are so many you know it's a whole new generation who weren't able to experience the road warrior the first time it came out in the context in which it came out you know in the context in which it came out it was like this uh you know this post-apocalyptic future that we seem to be so close to now and that's one of the things that uh that makes i think the movie resonant and uh doing the original again and and giving giving it new ideas for for what the, this uh, reboot is going to be, you know. Uh, so I have, you know, I I don't have the same sort of uh, uh, negative uh, uh, outlook on those kinds of things. I guess you know some some people call things a cliche, and I I say no, it's not a cliche. It's a universal truth. So just go with that. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and I agree with you, Alvaro. You know, sometimes what I, what I seem to see from even my friends is there's two kinds of attitudes they have. Either they go like uh, they either say like we see something like you know like a big budget blockbuster, whether you know it's a superhero movie or you know Transformers, right. what have you. They'll say like you know if they didn't like it, they'll say oh well you know what what did you expect? They know blah 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 you know. Or the other one is it's overrated or, you know, it's this or that. I mean, it just seems to be like if they, like when someone does try something new, there's sort of like, you know, you do see something new. It's almost like there's a, a trend, you know, in, in movie reviewers of like, Oh my God, why were they doing this? And then, you know, that's where right. studios can say like, Hey, we tried to do something new and nobody went to go see it. Yeah, that's true. I, and and there's this thing, you know, when Dustal Dawn is a reimagining as a television series, a reimagining of the movie and taking that world further, you know. So in so many ways, you know, we're guilty of it too, but we're trying to do something else with it, you know. We're trying to uh, to take it further and, uh, and you know, develop characters, bring in new characters, but just utilize that world. And then and we have to, you know, the other thing to remember is exactly what you said. This is a, this is in so many ways a business. And sometimes it's easier, it's a different, it's an easier sell to sell someone something that they think they already know. Um, and, but it's just, but now it's, it's, it's the same, but it's different. And, and it's, it's, it's that kind of uh, ability to take, take something that some, that people already are familiar with and give it back to them in a new way. And I think that when, when you do that well, people respond to it well. And that was one of the great things about working on the show is that, you know, it was uh, very, uh, it was apparent very early on that everybody involved, the, the cast and, and the writers and, and the directors that were brought on board to direct episodes, they were all coming to this as a, as, as a bit of a passion project. Nobody was really there, in my opinion, just kind of 
picking up the check and, and you know walking away from it. Everybody was really invested in 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 the project. I think you just you you get it you get a sense of that when you watch the stuff. And uh, so you know I think that's the that's the best you can hope for and best you can ask for. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you, know, I've watched the whole uh, the whole first season, and um, you know I can definitely tell. You know, uh, you you have. Both of the main of the Gecko brothers, they both, you know, one looks like Clooney, one looks like Tarantino. Um, I, I thought, I mean, that was excellent casting, by the way. I was like, wow. Well, I mean, I could, see, you know, the, the, you know, finding someone that looks like Tarantino, he has a unique look. So I was like, man, that what must have been either the easiest casting session ever or the hardest casting session ever, because, you know, I, I mean, either you have to look through a ton of headshots or like, you know, only two got, you know, two or even closely resemble, uh, you know, actors who submitted. And you know, and when I watched right. this, when I, and when I watched it, you know, especially the first couple episodes, it takes place, you know, in that same little convenience store with the sheriff right. and, and, you know, and, um, you know, it, it was, you know, very well done. And, um, and then there's also, um, you know, j- you know, for those who haven't seen it, there's also a whole layer that you've added to the sh- TV show as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in that opening, in that opening episode, which is really based on the first five or 10 minutes of the film, you know, in the film, the character of so the Texas Ranger Earl McGraw is played by Michael Parks, mm-hmm. and he gets killed off in that first 10 minutes of the film. And we had, you know, Don Johnson playing the character uh, on our show. You know, he's a, a tremendous actor in a beginning. But we were going to extend his role so that even though his character died in the first episode, he was in flashbacks for the next few episodes. And uh, so you got to see more of that character. Uh, and that's... Uh, a lot of the fun of the project like this too is that it exists in this special, you know, uh, world called the Tarantino universe, you know, the mm-hmm. Tarantino verse, you know, Earl McGraw shows up in planet terror. Earl McGraw shows up in, uh, in, uh, other, other Tarantino things. So you've got this kind of continuity of, of story and, and, and things like that. These characters just that kind of show up in these different Tarantino kind of related things. And so, uh, it's, it's amazing to, to, you know, to have a small part in that, in that world. Yeah. And, and I think you've done a phenomenal job. Um, you know, I, you know, I, I when, uh, I first heard about, you know, the Dustled on series, you know, I, I was like, you know, it was just going to be a continuation, you know, uh, it was just going to be a prequel. And then I, wa- I watched it. I was like, Oh, wow. It's really interesting what they've done here. And they sort yeah, of, well, you know, I was just going to say back in the day, you know, back in the late nineties, I actually had, uh, Robert was out, out in Japan promoting a film he did called faculty. And we were messaging each other online and he said, you know, Dimension and Miramax were interested in doing a couple of sequels to Dustle Dawn. Probably it would, would be straight to video and shot back to back and asked me if I had any ideas. And so I pitched an idea for basically a sort of spaghetti Western prequel to Dustful Dawn, which we ended up making as Dustful Dawn 3, The Hangman's Daughter. Uh, with Michael Parks uh, playing a real real life character named Ambrose Pierce who disappeared in Mexico around the time of the Mexican Revolution, uh, and so it was great to have already kind of had the background of doing research. The story also is sort of the genesis of Santana of the Santanico Pandemonium character played by Salma Hayek in the original film, and kind of came up with this different backstory for her and researching all the sort of Mesoamerican uh, mythologies of you know, Aztec and Mayan things and, and our own special ideas about what these, these creatures were that, that inhabit the, this, uh, this bordello south of the border. And, 
So coming to the show again, it was like taking some of the, some of those same ideas, but but going so much further with them and and creating you know more backstory and more more uh, sort of lines of of uh, a story and plot and, and character arts and all of that kind of stuff. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. That really uh, was 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 fun to work with and coming up with ideas for for uh for the season especially since you know after the first season the movie is over we kind of took that that movie and turned it into 10 episodes of television obviously with a lot of new material a lot of new characters added the character that wilmer valderrama plays is one of three characters that cheech marine plays in the film uh carlos uh and in the movies there's not that much of a character and in our show carlos become a main uh, you know, a huge part of the show, uh, a big anchor for the show. And, uh, and now in season two, it's like, you know, the world is, is, is open again. And uh, so to be able to create the season arc uh, that, you know, that takes us uh, completely out of the movie now, uh, the following these characters and allowing the stories and, and storylines and arcs to grow from characters instead of, you know, just following what we had already seen. Well, you know, it was a great challenge and also just a great opportunity to, to try to do something interesting and new. So, so Alvaro, when, you, when you're, you know, working together, I imagine, you know, before each season, you know, you and all the other writers are in the room together. You know, how much, yeah. out, how much outlining do you do before you actually all get started writing your own episodes? Well, it was, it was really kind of an amazing process. We had, we had kind of an eight-week uh, stretch last summer to, to just talk out where we were going and one of the one of the i think really invaluable things that we did was we brought in each of the main characters each of the main actors you know one at a time to come into the room and talk about their character you know tell you know tell me what you thought about season one how do you feel your character you know uh feels at the end of, of season one how does your character feel about other characters on the show but what did you like about season one what did you not like about season one what would, what would you differently what kinds of things you know would you like to see your character doing and stuff like that and that really kind of gave us a lot of ideas and we started out with 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 uh some ideas about where we thought we would go in the season but you know, it was a it was a really evolutionary process and a really collaborative process. I think that was that was amazing. And uh, and then as far as outlining, yeah, there's there's so much of uh, of you know, like they say, so much of writing is rewriting. And so much of writing is also the pre-writing process before the script of of you know writing outlines, having them you know brought to the table, having them torn apart and rebuilt. Um, you know, ideas that, that, you know, we had for, you know, a big finale that, that might get uh, just pushed, you know, further uh, or closer to, you know, before the end of the season so we can even go further from the big idea that we had and all those kinds of things, you know, it's, it's a, it, it really is sort of a, um, you know, and nothing is written in stone sort of thing as, as we're in that process. And things are very fluid and flexible with the, with the idea of being open to, uh, open to, to trying to collaboratively uh, and individually 
you know, bring bring your A game and and keep constantly trying to challenge ourselves to to make things better. Well, one of the things our showrunner has kind of instilled in all of us is this idea of uh, you know, uh, our showrunner is a guy named Carlos Cotto, who's worked on several shows and also has uh, you know, great record in, in television. And uh, one of the things you know he would say is if someone brought an idea that everybody thought, hey, that's a really good that's a really good idea. If characters you know would do that. Let's see if we can earn it. You know, let's just not try to put a pin over here and say, by this time, this has to happen. But let's really see if we can get our characters to that point organically and through the characters themselves, getting to that, to that good idea, you know? Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a real challenge. And, uh, and, uh, but, you know, it feels like, you know, we're all working together to do, to try to do that. And, and you know, it's really great to have a showrunner, you know, with a lot of experience, you know, to actually sort of guide it along. I mean, uh, you know, I've actually talked to other writers or other shows, and they've mentioned how important that person can be because, you know, like you just said, you know, people have to earn it. And you can't sort of just force it just because, hey, it's a cool idea. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that, and that, I think that spirit really continues on, even as we're shooting an episode, you know, to come up with an idea, even as we're shooting and say, you know, maybe this needs to happen. Well, it's, you know, let's, let's not try to force it. Let's, let's really try to find a way to make it, to make it seem like a natural organic part of the story. Um, and so, you know, it, there's, uh, uh, and we're, we're just really, really, uh, fortunate and uh you know to created these constellations of great great crew great actors um you know great directors of photography and great directors on our episodes to really kind of try to you know to do the best that we can with with uh with our ideas and, and with the scripts and uh and you know try to put out something that that people will will be intrigued by and, and want to keep watching so you know, uh, Alvaro. Now that you have you know you you uh, have you know uh, uh, the episode and everything from the writers' meeting, you know how you, do you personally sit down to write? I mean, do, do you? So I mean, I know you probably have a couple of points and a couple of things that you have to incorporate in the episode. But do you right. sort of do you sort of break it out into the eight parts like the you know, the eight structure theory, or do you, do you just do the traditional three act, or do you not do any of that and just go go full forward in? Oh, well, you know, we, we definitely stick to a structure, you know, on our show, we, we kind of go with what we, you know, present as a five act structure, you know, um, and, and, uh, the outline, you know, will, will reflect the act breaks and, you know, so I could say sometimes there's a fluid in those change, but we'll always try to have a really good, strong, you know, act out and then a strong act in, uh, you know, in between the breaks and stuff like that. Um, uh, so you know the outline process is fairly rigorous and and uh, and is really as detailed as, as we can possibly make it. And then other things are left just you know with our chairman calls you know writer's opportunity to you know kind of you know when you're writing the script actually find something that you know will uh, will not have maybe not have been in the outline or not as clear in the outline that suddenly in the writing of the of the script itself you know nothing. Um, but uh, as far as the writing process, you know, it's it's a, lo- a lot of crying, a lot of procrastination, a lot of you know um, suicidal thoughts, and then somehow putting together something that that uh, that you know is going to be um, challenged again, you know. And I think that's that in a lot of ways that's a 
that's the liberating part of the thing too. You know, is realizing that uh, that you know it's it's our duty to try to give the best that we can, but realize that you know it's always going to be improved upon. It's really always going to. It, it's still a malleable thing up to the moment that, that you shoot it, because um, there are things that happen. Um, there are new ideas that come in. Um, one of the one of the great things about this particular season is that we were able to have, you know, uh, all of our scripts written before we actually started shooting, and so that allowed, um, you know, for a certain amount of, uh, um, you know, being able to go over the entirety of the of, of, of the season uh, of the scripts and really try to, you know, make sure all the setups were set up and all the payoffs were paid off. You know, and and everything got hit. So I mean, it it, it uh, uh, you know it, it sets the ball pretty high. So hopefully we can we can uh, we can make that jump. So you know, has your writing style sort of changed over the years? You know, from you know, um, obviously I was looking at your IMDb and your your first yeah. actual um, uh, writing credit is you know from Dust on Three, Hangman's Daughter. So when you yeah. wrote that to you where you are now, ha- has your writing uh, uh, sort of a process changed a lot? Uh, I think the process has probably changed a bit, um, and I think that the style has probably changed a bit. I mean, I remember back to that time, you know, one of the executives who was at Dimension at the time said, you know, your script is great. It, it reads almost like a novel. And I realized that I was, you know, I really wasn't trained as a screenwriter. A lot of this was, you know, kind of learning by doing. Uh, I didn't, I never had taken any kind of screenwriting classes or anything like that. I didn't go to school for screenwriting. I was, a, I was an English major, uh, but I had a, a lot of background in, in both. I had three semesters of creative writing as an undergraduate in poetry, of all things. And then I was also an entertainment journalist for the student newspaper. I was an assistant entertainment editor. And, you know, and, and I had done some, some news stuff, too. I was working in a newspaper when I was writing Dustful Dawn 3. And it felt like, you know, those things which I sort of discounted uh, were actually strong uh primers for screenwriting because in screenwriting it's so much about the essence of things. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And uh, you know, such a skeletal structure uh, that the poetry lent, lent itself to that because in poetry so many times you're trying to create, you know, sensations and images and emotions in a reader in as few words as possible creating these images in as few words as possible. And in journalism, you know, it's kind of this, this just the facts, ma'am, kind of reporting, you know, which also lends itself to screenwriting. So those were, those were, those were actually powerful, you know, sort of set up tools for me. Uh, but, you know, even then I, I feel like, uh, like I, I, I learned to kind of um, find my voice. I think my voice was, was there in that, in the first script uh, in that, Hangman's Daughter. It wasn't the first script I'd written, but it's the first script that, you know, got made. And then um, to uh, to kind of hone that down and keep trying to, um, you know, to, to convey as much information as possible in the most economic way possible. 
um, and and try to really find the power of the language in, in order to you know to convey in the reader's minds you know that might be you know, a reader who's picking up the script and is, and is the one who's going to pass it on to the next guy or not or to you know actually have a shooting script and have you know um, the director read this and say, you know, this is how we're going to do this, or the director of photography read this and say, this is how it's going to be shot, without using, you know, without telling them exactly what they're going to do, but just to be able to sort of suss uh, that out for themselves in in the script that you've written. Uh, so yeah, I think it's definitely evolved. I guess if I can use that word again, um, as part of the process, and that, you know, I hope that I can keep, you know, keep evolving, keep getting better at what I'm doing. And, and you know, um, I mean, it's it, you know, it's amazing that you know you're always you know finding new ways to improve. Um, you know, I, I've noticed that too. You know, you touched on something about you know uh, you said the script read, read like a novel. Um, you know, as I as I do more screenwriting as well, uh, and even read scripts, I've, I've realized I've finally realized now that actually reading screenplays that have either been produced or not produced, but have been like either uh, either bought or optioned, really gives you a, right. a, a gives gives you a a view. Uh, into that world that, you know, any screenwriting guru or whatever can't give you, if you know what I mean. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that's the thing too. I mean, I spent, I spent a long time once I started really writing and, you know, Hangman's Daughter and after that, uh, of amassing a library of, 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 of anything I thought was useful, but among those, you know, practically every book on screenwriting ever written. Uh, and, and, uh, I was always trying to find, you know, I was always trying to find uh, shortcuts, maybe it's not the right word, but but sort of techniques or ideas of things that could help me, you know, uh, in the process. And the problem with that sometimes, and it was for me, was that, you know, it can become a crutch because it can, it can actually become kind of a stifling, have a stifling effect. And when I was writing and I would be like, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do next, but I know the answer is probably on this shelf over here somewhere or these shelves or this whole, you know, this room of books. And, um, and I think that the, the more that, the more, the more that you actually do in the process, the more that you're actually involved in the writing process, the less that you feel like you need those kinds of things because you've already sort of, um, you, you've, you've made them a part of yourself. They're inherent in your own sensibilities because, you know, you've been a reader your whole life. You've read, you've read scripts or you've read novels, you've seen movies, you understand the language of film, you understand the language of screenwriting. And, um, and I think, if, you know, it's sort of getting to that point where, um, you know, I, I always kind of use the example of, of um, when I was an undergraduate, when I first got to the University of Texas, I tested out of 16 hours of, of Spanish, you know, and, and I never had to take my, I never had to take Spanish at the college level. And I felt like I never really got as intensive a training in Spanish as I could have. And it wasn't until years and years later, I was finally like reading books in Spanish and realizing I wasn't translating into English in my head as I was reading. I was just understanding it. And, and I think it's the same thing with, with the writing. It's like I, had, I already had the language of screenwriting and the language of cinema in my brain. And I just needed to kind of tap into it and, and realize that all of these things, or many of them, were already inherently a part of my uh, my own sensibility, you know. Yeah, and you know, I, I've realized it too, is that when you, you know, sort of when you start doing it, and you know, doing it is the most important part. When you start getting in there and actually writing, and you know, being resistant, and 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 you know, you start to realize you you don't need 
those signposts as much. You know what I mean? So you, I mean, you, I'm sure you've heard of like you know the certain rules like oh by page 17 this has to happen. By, sure. And you know, and you realize that you know those guideposts aren't like definitive rules. They're just you know right. either. I guess you could say principles or, you know, someone was just like, Hey, look, I noticed that on page 17 of these scripts, this happened. So therefore here's the rule. Right. Well, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, I did, I did take workshops later on, especially like I did the save the cat workshop here in Austin with Blake Snyder when he was, when he was still alive. And, and it was, a, it was, a, it was the first screenwriting workshop I'd ever done. And it was so amazing to me because what Blake had done in his book and in the workshop was to take, you know, this sort of, this sort of 15 beats, and how it show you how it, you know, if you could look at Jaws and you could look at, you know, a, a comedy and you could look at a horror film, you could look at whatever genre it was, you could always sort of find these sort of 15 things in it. And the way that he described them was, you know, it's like the casual Fridays version of, you know, story or, or, or Lou Hunter or whatever that, um, that it was, it was so accessible, you know? And, uh, but I think the thing about those things too, is that you really kind of have to take them as, um, as a descriptive and not, not prescriptive, you know, it, it's describing a thing that already exists. And when you, you know, you can, you can definitely apply them and they can help you in structure, but, but don't be so confined to, to a page number or anything like that. Just like, just know that, 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 this is sort of the way stories have been told throughout time. And that's why I feel like so much of it is inherent. It's kind of telling you stuff that you already know, but putting it in the language that makes it sort of accessible and easy to understand, you know? So I think, I think all those things are valuable. I don't discount them in any way, shape or form, but I think that you realize uh, that, you know, that, that uh, it's kind of telling you things that you, you sort of already intrinsically know, uh, and maybe have just not thought of in those terms before gives you gives you a terminology gives you a way to name the parts you know of the of, of the body of your story and uh and realize hey you know the knee bone's connected to the shin bone and that that's that that's the way that the body works that's the way story works um and if you you know if you put these pieces together and realize that that there's a framework then you can kind of you know, mess around with that and, and twitch things around and, and surprise yourself even uh, and with the hopes that, that that's going to surprise the reader and that's going to surprise your audience. And I think the other thing is, this, is to not discount at all the value of actually working with actors and, and, and actually being involved in the process so that, you know, I mean, for me, I was always kind of describe myself as a guy chained to the laptop in the dungeon and that and these were all just the voices in my head I was writing out. But when you're actually, you know, on set where actors like Don Johnson or, or uh, Robert De Niro in Machete, you know, is, is, you know, doing lines that you wrote and bringing his own sensibilities to them and stuff like that. It's like, it, it opens up, you know, it's like if we were on the chakra level, this is like, you know, your mind explodes, you, you reach the crown and you, and you reach Nirvana and, you know, someone like Robert De Niro is doing your dialogue and bringing this whole other sensibility to it that you didn't see, even as you were writing it, um, that, that can influence the way that you approach writing, uh, approach writing dialogue or approach writing scene or whatever it happens to be, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, yeah that's a very good point. Um, 
you know, sometimes uh, I'll sit in with script readings. Uh, so, you know, I've, I, I actually um, I co-founded a writer's group two years ago, and we still meet. You know, we meet twice a month. And, you know, yeah. when everyone's done, we actually stage readings. We actually get actors and uh, have a, I just have a, a you know, reading uh, in a conference room all together. And, um, you know, and it's, you know, the writers who actually who, who wrote that particular script, you know, they're always frankly taking notes because you're actually hearing now, you know, a different voice uh, added to that, you know, because, again, like you said, they come to, you know, putting their inflection on on, uh, on the character. Right. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And just, you know, even things that you thought work on the page that don't work, you know, in the reality of the situation. Or, 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 and that is another thing too. It's like just an example of last season of uh, uh, working on an episode that I'd written uh, with Robert Patrick, and we were rehearsing the scene, sitting around the table with Robert Patrick and uh, Madison Davenport, Brandon Sue, who would play Kate and Scott Fuller, his his children on the show. And there was a moment I was just kind of kind of glanced over at Robert. And he just had this look on his face. And I just told him, I said, you know, I, I can't even look at you because you're so, you're, you're so intense right now. I mean, you can do more with one look than, than, than with a, if I gave you a page of dialogue. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And realize that the physicality of the actor is something that never to sort of uh, under uh, underestimate in in the, in the writing process, and realize that you have to you have to leave something for the actor, leave something for the actor to do. Recently in Los Angeles, I went to some screenings of uh, of films that John Borman made, starring Lee Marvin, particularly uh, Point Blank, and a movie called Hell in the Pacific. And uh, Dwayne Epstein, I think his name is, had written a biography of Lee Marvin, you know, told a story about a scene in Point Blank in which Lee Marvin's character uh, sees his, comes back to see his wife who basically set him up or watched as, as he was allegedly killed and, and left for dead. And he comes back just to see her and realizing uh, or thinking that he's going to kill the guy who, who tried to kill him, that he's been now shacked up with his wife. And had this scene where... Lee had all this dialogue. Lee Marvin had all this dialogue with his wife, and he just asked if he could not say any of it and just have the conversation be on from the wife's side. And you, and so it's just his wife kind of talk, talking to him as if they're having a conversation, but it's only her lines. And he's just giving her a look. He's, he's just looking. And he's just he's just acting without dialogue. And you see how much how smart that is, first of all, and how brave it is for an actor mm-hmm. to say. I can do this without words, you know. I can do this with my own physicality, with my own presence, without, you know, without having to just say everything that I feel. I can show you that. And to think about that as a writer is, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's an amazing sort of lesson in realizing that, that this, this really is a skeleton. And it's the actors and it's the directors of photography and it's the directors and it's the lighting crew and everybody else that puts the flesh on those bones. And, um, and you know, it's, it's, it's something I, I think about, uh, you know, in the process of writing and trying to uh, kind of leave that, leave that space. You know, that's what the white space is, I think, you know, uh, on the page. The white space is, is the place where the actor shines. The white space is where it's not, you know, sort of snappiness of the dialogue or how well you wrote those action lines. It's, uh, it's the actors themselves, the characters that are 
that are breathing between those scenes, in between those lines. Um, and, uh, you know, I, 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 I talked about a Jonathan Richmond song about the Velvet Underground. He had a line in where he says, they played less notes and left more space. And that's sort of the thing I tried to do in screenwriting, kind of play less notes and leave more space. Leave that space there for the, for the actors to, to inhabit. Uh, and I think when you really have a strong scene, uh, like the, the scene, I think, is my favorite scene in, in that episode where these, these characters are sitting together realizing that they're, they're kind of stuck in this place and, and Seth Gecko is kind of forcing them to confront their own um, demons in this little one, one little scene that, uh, that the ballad is, is good, but it's, 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 it's really what the actors bring to it. It's really so much of what they're what they're uh, showcasing their own talents and their own capabilities um, that that you know that provides a lesson to me as a writer. Yeah, it, it's sort of you know uh, adding that layer of subtext, you know, and it's sort of. Yeah. You know, finding a way to actually say things without actually coming out and saying them and all the things below the surface. And, you know, um, I've never actually seen that movie, but I will make sure to actually check that out because that would, you know, that's a phenomenal way to, you know, to tell a story. Yeah, I mean, and and, uh, I think he also gave another example, another movie that Lee Marvin did with uh, director Richard Brooks called The Professionals, which is a Western. It's also, you know, I'm sure it's a big influence on on Quentin Tarantino and things like that too. Um, but Point Blank and The Professionals and Helen the Pacific, which is basically in a lot of ways a silent film in which Lee Marvin and Toshiro Mifune, the Japanese actor, are stranded on uh, on an island uh, in World War II. And, you know, one of them speaks English, one of them speaks Japanese. It was uh, remade in a way as Enemy Mine in the 80s by Wolfgang Peterson, with Dennis Quaid and Luke Gossett as a sci-fi movie where, uh, you know, a human and an alien are crash-landed on this planet. And, um, uh, you know, you just... I, they're just such strong lessons for, for writers, I think, to look at structure, to look at how stories told, and to look at the, you know, to, to sort of be reminded of of how much can be done with violence, or how much can be done with the with looks, with 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 the telling story. Well, Robert told told the story. I'm not sure it's actually in the director's chair or not, but something that Francis Stoppola had told him when he was doing the interview about, you know something that you like to do with the actors is shooting an entire scene without dialogue, just as a, just as a rehearsal, as a practice. You know, and Robert said he never, he never actually done that before, but he was really intrigued to try it, you know? Um, and, and I think that those, you know, there's something, there's something that can be gained by that. Um, and there's, there's definitely a lesson to be learned, uh, from the lighting standpoint and, and from the directing standpoint too. You know, because you're not dependent on what, what's coming out of the actors now as much as you are, um, you know, remembering that this is cinema. You know, this is a visual medium. Uh, people remember shots. People remember quotes from movies all the time. But, you know, when you have a scene and you let the actors never sort of really inhabit that scene and you don't, you're not in a hurry to yell cut, uh, you know, you can find some, some impressive uh, moments. And uh, hopefully, you know, remember them in a way that uh, that will illuminate your own writing. At least I do. 
and you know, that is a very interesting technique as well. You know, uh, what I uh, what, in one of these you know uh, film books I have. Um, I know you can't see it right now, but there's a whole shelf of, of screenwriting books behind me of films and all everything else. Uh, one technique. I'm sure I have one. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure we have, probably have almost the entire same library. Yeah. But but uh, you know they, there was a, a technique where the guy actually says, uh, "Watch your favorite film without sound," and yeah. and you know and you just see how every scene plays out. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, one piece of advice that I've often given to people who, you know, either in a workshop that I taught or or led, or you know, people who ask me about. Um, you know, writing something. And I said, well, you know, like you've seen lots of movies. So what's your, you know, think of a movie that, that has a great scene in it that you really love and then try to find the screenplay for that movie and read the scene. Read, read What does that look like on paper? You know, if you have this favorite scene from, you know, I don't know, The Exorcist or To Live and Die in L.A. or I'm getting really freaking examples. Uh, but, you know, what does that look like on paper? Well, it was just an action scene. What are the action lines read like? You know, what, how does, what does that look like? Um, and just to see the thing that you've always seen uh, completely visual, visually, and what does that look like when it's words on paper, you know? And, uh, and you know, to see how that was translated to become the scene that you loved in the movie. Um, I think that's a, that's a, a really strong lesson um, uh, to kind of just, just, to, just to experience that in a different way. And match them up. Yeah, and and I, I agree. That's something I, I've done too. Is actually go out and find the screenplays of things. Um, like I, speaking of which, you know, uh, you know, the Oscars weren't you know too long ago. Uh, as soon as I watched Birdman and the Grand Budapest Hotel, I was like, I got to see these screenplays. Right. Uh, I think right. You know, those two and Whiplash are definitely yeah. the, the best written movies. Um, in the Oscar race, um, and those are three screenplays. I was like, I just want to see how they did this, uh, and you know, it, it's phenomenal. And actually, I had one of the writers of Birdman, Alex Denalaris, on here, uh, you know, about awesome. 15 episodes ago, and he was, uh, you know, uh, just awesome to be able to pick his brain. But um, as it is yours, because you know, you're the guy who actually wrote, you know, uh, you know, all you know these films that you know we're talking about, so you can actually tell us, no, this is what I did, you know. And uh, so, you know, speaking of which, you know, uh, I want to ask you, you know about Machete, and, you know, sure. I wanted to ask you, you know, did you come up with this, you know, the inception of this idea, or was it, or was it Robert, or was, you know, was it just uh, of your brainstorming? It was always Robert, it was always Robert and Danny. I mean, I think, uh, you know, when Robert first met Danny Trejo, when he came to audition for Desperado, I, you know, the, the story goes where Robert took one look at Danny and said, you're the guy. Robert, uh, Danny was auditioning for a character called Navajas, which means knives. And he's a knife thrower in Desperado with Antonio Madera's and Salma Hayek. And, uh, you know, Danny had been acting for many years already, uh, usually playing, you know, dog number three or, you know, the bad guy, uh, swallow apart. And, you know, Robert just like he said, became fast friends with Danny and said, you know, it would be great to make a movie in which you're the, you're the hero. You know, you're the guy. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And I think that was sort of the inception of Machete. And Robert had written kind of a long treatment, scriptment kind of thing for for a Machete character. Um, and then when it came time to to make uh, Grindhouse, you know, which Robert made Planet Terror, Quentin Tarantino made Death Proof, and it was released as a double feature, they came up with this idea of really kind of going with the whole double feature drive-in concept and doing 
fake trailers from movies that, that didn't exist. And so Machete became one of those things. And it was like, well, great. We can just make the fake trailer. We never have to make the movie. Uh, but, then, you know, even though Brian House, uh, you know, sort of underperformed at the box office, um, the, the trailer for Machete sort of took on a, a life of its own on, on YouTube and things like that. And, and people really responded to it. So it, 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 uh, it became the thing where, you know, we thought, well, we're actually going to do it. And, uh, and I, you know, I started writing uh, around the time of Grindhouse. Uh, I was there and wrote a little bit of dialogue that is actually in the trailer with Cheech as the priest. And then, you know, later on just uh, started, you know, working from the trailer, basically, and creating a new story, you know, a fuller story out of it and having, uh, uh, you know, creating more characters, uh, to just all the characters, uh, you know, the Michelle Rodriguez character, the Don Johnson character, all those kinds of things um, that uh, that just it just really evolved over over time until you know we actually made the film and uh, and you see you know you see how how it turned out. Yeah, and, and I thought it was phenomenal. And you know, I and you know, it, you know, it was the, that grindhouse theme. You have the cuts, the scratches, and you know, <laughs> and, and you know, uh, and it's just you know, and Danny is the perfect guy to play a guy. I mean, he looks like a guy named Machete. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I just did a um, a panel with him at a Comic Con in uh, in Fort Lauderdale a few weeks ago. You know, and someone from the audience asked, you know, what's your favorite character? And he said, you know, Machete and Marsha Brady. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, so I had to ask him how that happened. And he said, yeah, you know, my my manager said, you know, I think we got a Super Bowl commercial. And he was like, you're kidding, you know? What what do I have to do? He said, well. <laughs> You have to be Marsha Brady. He's like, I'll do it. <laughs> so, uh, that was, that was, that was, that was, you know, even that is just like, uh, so amazing. It was so, so amazing to see. It's just, it's, it's, it's terrific. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to, to, to be a small part of, uh, of, you know, the, uh, the sort of, uh, persona that, Danny has, you know, has been able to inhabit as, as that character. So when, you know, when they were filming Machete, were you, were you on set uh, every day or were you not, uh, or just a few days or? Yeah, I was on a few days. I was on off and on. Um, it was, you know, it was amazing. It was amazing. I got to, you know, um, be on set when Robert De Niro was there and you know, got to talk to him a bit. And, you know, he was so, he was so generous and, and so, so kind. And, and I think the thing about, you know, the thing about him too was that you know he was he, he had uh, he had expressed interest in becoming involved in the project early on to play to play this senator and in the original draft of the script the senator was just the guy that got shot he was not really a character in the, in the script so we really started having to try to build a character out of this guy and so you know but the thing that uh, you know we understood from from Robert De Niro was that he wasn't interested in, you know, doing it unless there was really something there uh, to do. And um, he didn't want people to feel he was just, you know, picking up a check. And so, uh, you know, started coming up with ideas and setting in dialogue and, and concepts and stuff like that. And we get responses like, that's yeah, good, that's good, keep coming, keep coming. And, uh, you know, finally hit on sort of the, the finale of his character and, and, 
you know, the, the speeches that I'd written for his character, you know, when, when he signed on. And uh, one of the funny things is, you know, in, in, the, in the finale of the film, after he's been shot and he's, he's dying on the floor, uh, on the ground, you know, with Lindsay Lohan dressed as a nun hovering over him with a gun, he's sort of uh, kind of blanking out. He starts in my script, at least one draft of it, he starts reciting the act of contrition, the Catholic act of contrition uh, in Latin. Like he's reverting back to his actual, you know, he's not really a Texan and all this stuff. And Robert read the, that thing. And he's like, well, what the hell is this? And he's like, you know, he's not really a Texan. He's, he's reverting back to his, you know, New York childhood or whatever. And he's an altar boy. And he's, he's reciting the act of contrition, good forgiveness before he dies. And he's like, that doesn't make, you know, he's never going to do that. And then they were on set one day, and I got a call from Elizabeth Amigan, who was producer on the film. And she's like, Oliver, we need the, we need the Latin. I was like, what are you talking about? It's like the Latin thing that De Niro says. He's working with a priest. He wants to get it right. <laughs> I was like, holy cow. But that was the thing, man. He was so, I mean, he, he, he came to set completely prepared. He knew every line of dialogue. And he did, you know. It was not, never a thing where, you know, I don't know my line or whatever like that. Please, you know, he was, he was totally into it. And I, and, uh, I think he had a really good time doing it. He certainly had a, you know, it was definitely a highlight of my professional career as a writer to, to say, well, you know, I, I did a movie with Robert De Niro and, and Lindsay Lohan and Andy Trejo and everybody else. But, you know, it's, you know, he was definitely an actor who I'd grown up you know, just loving every film that, that he had done. And uh, was so impressed with, with him and, and his presence. Uh, but I had uh, stories like that for a lot of the actors that I've worked with. They've just uh, been really fortunate to, to have people that just always seem to bring their A-game, you know, and, and for that, little, little movies. <laughs> and that has to be such a high as a writer, too, to say, you know, uh, hey, Alvaro, who's your you know, movie? Oh, we had, you know, Robert De Niro. And, uh, <laughs> right. So, and, and, no, absolutely. And, you know, you also, you know, you touched on, you had, you had Lindsay Lohan, and also you had Steven Seagal in the movie as well. There's Steven Seagal, who was great. We had, you know, Don Johnson, you know, um, written some things, you know, Robert had spent a lot of time with Don Johnson before, and, uh, and so, you know, we used some of the like little phrases that Doug Johnson said in the script. And I was sitting with him one day on set, and he was like, oh, I love this. This is great. You know, it's like, I say stuff like this. Like, how does that blow your skirt up? And I said, I know. That's why we put it in the script. We wanted it to be very natural for you. Um, no, it, was, it, it was, you know, just uh, amazing. Really amazing. Even during the editing process, I was sitting with uh, with uh, my cousin Rebecca, who Robert's younger sister, who had been uh, was working on the film as well. We were watching the De Niro scene, and I said, "Can you just stop it for a minute?" And she said, "What? Well, what's the matter?" I said, "I just need to take a minute, you know." That's Robert De Niro, <laughs> and he's saying lines I wrote, you know, in my room, and now you know, it's just like I just need a minute. Uh, but, you know, it's great. And whenever stuff like that happens, it's just like, it's, it's important to just say thank you and be amazed by it all. And, you know, and that is, that is absolutely amazing. And, um, and, you know, like you said, it's also, as I've been finding it, too, to have gratitude as well and always miss and, and live in the moment and not, you know, just sort of when you saw, see Robert De Niro and just want to stop it there. That, that, that's, you know, that's amazing, Alvaro. 
I was just, yeah. I still I get getting goosebumps right now thinking about it, you know. Uh, and it was, it was, you know, it was a great, great experience. And, you know, the movie did well. Um, and, uh, you know, I was just really proud of, you know, the way it turned out and realized that, you know, the last draft is the final edit of the movie, you know. Um, there's so much of that movie that, that, that so, so, so many ways that movie was improved by, by the edit and really making it come together. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it's far from a perfect movie, but it's definitely something I'm, I'm proud of. And, uh, and you know, it was, it was a great experience to be involved with it. And, and you know, uh, I particularly liked the the, uh, the final battle between Seagal and Trejo. Because yeah. if, if you asked me, in a, you know, in a million years, I never would have guessed that, you know, you, those two ever would have crossed paths. And, you know, in any movie, because they sort of do different movies, you know. Yeah. Um, and But they they were able to come together for, for Machete, Machete. And it's just, you know, I mean, I thought it was very well done, too. And, and Seagal was still doing his Aikido. And, you know. Yeah. Tre- Trejo's still swinging the, mach- the machetes. He's still kind of street yeah. baller style. I thought it was very yeah. well choreographed as well. I thought it was phenomenal. Yeah, well, thanks. I mean, you know, that's again, it's it's just like, you know, it, part of that, part of the whole process of machete too is realizing for, fairly early on that this is going to be, in so many ways, the kind of kitchen sink screenwriting. It's like nothing is off bar, nothing is you know out of bounds. Everything is. Anything is possible. You know, you could have a scene where a guy would call down a building with, you know, someone's intestines. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Uh, or, you know, <laughs> Michelle, you stab us with cops, you know, or the fake cop through, through the back of his of the seat and it's in the back seat of the car and then steers the car by turning his machete through the guy, you know, and stuff like that. And it's, and, uh, you know, so it was, it was, it was pretty liberating in, in, in that way too. And realizing that you're going to have this, this crazy final showdown where, well, you know, uh, it was, anything was possible and you could have, you know, a sword fight with machete and, you know, and, uh, and Seagal and his sword and just, you know, it's, it was just turning everything up to a lot of my hope. So, you know, uh, when, when you were actually writing it, did you actually know Seagal was going to be casting that part? Or did you actually, you know, ha- uh, sort of, you know, evolve that part later on when Seagal was cast? Uh, a little bit of both. Uh, a little bit of both. I mean, the character was starting to be there before it was Seagal. And then knowing it was Seagal, things were, you know, were enhanced and added to it. It was, it was really, I mean, that was part of the process with, with the movie itself. I mean, even from Lindsay Lohan's character too. I mean, uh, Robert, you know, told me if I can get Lindsay Lohan to play this part, but it's not even a part. Uh, you know, we got to we got to try to you know give her some stuff and and just sort of you know hit on these different role ideas that just kind of you know gave her gave her her own arc and uh, and, uh, and and told a little story you know um, so it was great it was it was it was it was so much fun to to be a part of that 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 process and, and you know. That's great that everything was able to come together. Um, you know, yeah. very, very, you know, it's something. I mean, you know, you've been involved in movie making for you know, uh, two decades now, and you know, you know, whatever can go wrong will go wrong on a film set, and you know, yeah. uh, or even even beyond that, you know, even when things are in development, it's so good you were, you know, able to put it together. But I mean, again, uh, if you have any listener out there has not seen Machete, I urge you to go out there and check it out. Um, it's phenomenal. Uh, no, thanks. 
Jim Alvaro, you know, we've been talking for about an hour now. Um, would you mind just taking a few quick questions that got sent in? Sure. Uh, okay. I'm sorry? If that was an hour, it flew by. Yeah, it it always seems to work out that way, um, right. which which I don't know if I just asked the right question or, you know, I just sort of, I don't know. So, um, but, you you know, uh, I'm glad it flew by. Um, because I mean, well, it's, 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 yeah. Because I mean, it's I just, a conversation. Yeah, it's a conversation, you know. And when when you talk and you you're having your conversation, you you're not looking at your watch. So that's the way it goes. That's good. So uh, our first question is, uh, Alvaro, would you ever consider directing your own film? Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. I definitely am interested in doing that. Um, years and years and years ago, uh, I had written. Uh, it was actually my first screenplay, and um, I was, you know, uh, hoping to direct it. It was going to be a very low-budget, very independent, Texas-based project. It never really got off the ground, but sort of as uh, as a uh, training for that, I went and made a short film on video uh, and that, you know, no one has ever seen, no one will ever see. Uh, but, you know, it was, and it happened so quickly, it was not much of a lesson to, to me except to realize that, I needed a lot more experience uh, to do it, um, you know. And then for a long time, I just, you know, whenever I was asked that question, I would say, you know, you know, I just right now I'm just really trying to focus on being a better writer, and that's still my answer. I'm still trying to focus on being a better writer, but I'm definitely interested in in uh, doing that uh, that other role behind the camera. And uh, you know, I think that's part of the uh, to me part of the the great opportunity uh, uh, working on Dustal Dawn is that it's as a writer uh, of the episode, you're sort of writer producer, you're there on set, you're, you're working with the actors as much as you want to be. And so I've had, uh, you know, pretty hands-on experience in, in terms of, you know, working with the actors, uh, rehearsing with the actors, you know, even helping block scenes um, and things like that, that, uh, you know, that to me it's like, again, sort of more fuel for the fire, really wanting to, to take the opportunity uh, to try to, to, you know, to direct as well. I mean, I guess it's a, it's a thing, too, of that lesson uh, that I feel like I've, I've learned or I am learning about, you know, these sort, these sort of things that are sort of, that I, that I have the language or cinema uh, in some way already in my brain and that I can, you know, I can uh, approach these things uh in that way, uh, you know, we're still with a with a very open a very open heart and mind thing. You know, I'm always going to try to be learning. And I'm 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 the director in training or, or or writer in training or whatever. You know, um, but I'm you know but learning by doing and trying to be as involved in the process as possible. I mean, uh, and that's awesome that you're going to actually you're actually thinking about you know writing or uh, directing your own film. Um, I hope so. Yeah, because honestly, because then you could you know be like you know your your cousin or Tarantino was you know write and direct and you know really put your stamp on the film, kind of like you know the auteur theory of filmmaking. But this time, you know, you know you can say that because you know you have you're the writer director, you know, and you you know that's yeah. all you. Yeah, well, you know, I think the the auteur theory is a wonderful is a wonderful concept, and I certainly think that it holds true, you know, in a lot of ways. Directors, especially value directors, you know, they definitely have their stance. Uh, but I think that the thing that, that maybe I realized kind of coming out from the from the perspective of the writer uh, and just sort of being the fly on the wall sometimes in in 
in on set or whatever in any kind of environment when you see the process that you know it's so filmmaking and television is the most collaborative creative form that there is in my mind it is it is completely a collaboration uh nothing is possible without you know everybody's input and everybody's efforts to make this thing happen. You know, if, if you really want to be in a tour, you know, write poetry. There's no one that's ever going to say, you know, I'd really love to write a poem with you, you know? Um, <laughs> and, and I, I think that's, I mean, to me, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's, I think that's in a lot of ways why, you know, uh, Robert, has, has really depended on and, and created relationships with people with, with whom he can work again and again, actors and, and uh, people behind the camera, uh, because there's a, there's a sort of shorthand uh, language that becomes developed, you know, and there's, a, there's a, a sort of unwritten expectations of what people are bringing to the table. And, and it doesn't mean that he doesn't direct. He obviously does, uh, but, but he, he's able to... Um, to, to to get what he wants uh, by by virtue of having a really strong cast and crew, and uh, and and, and I'm, I think he would be the first person to to acknowledge that. And, um, it you know it may not have been that way in the early days because he was so he was so hands on he was so you know with El Mariachi and the short films that he made before then, um, you know it was always a thing of he was really trying to become a master of all trades not just a jack of all trades, but a master of all of them, because he never knew what was going to be the thing that was going to get him a job. You know, maybe people will hate, hate my movie, but they'll love the way it was shot and I'll get a job as a DP. Or maybe they'll hate, you know, they'll hate the, the, the way it looks, but they love the script. They love the dialogue and I'll get hired as a writer. And so he was always, you know, really trying to find the best uh, in himself to fill all those roles to see which one, you know, was going to be the one thing that, that people responded to. And they happened to respond to all of it, you know, in so many ways. Um, and, uh, uh, but, you know, now in, in the, you know, on the big scale, it's, it's really impossible to do that so much anymore. Um, and, you know, and I think that you know, whenever you see these speeches, uh, when people accept awards and they, you know, they they thank, you know, the writers or they thank the producers and they, you know, they thank the people who put this thing together, and it, it, it's it's it is so much of a of a community experience. You know, I think Orson Welles said every movie is a miracle, and the miracle is that you get all these different people who may have all kinds of different opinions to work together for the common cause, and that's really I think what 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 a song director does is sort of unite unite the team and and get everybody you know working for the good of the of the project and doing their best. Yeah, and uh, you know, just to add on, you know, you, you said you know the the director is the guy that sort of leads a team and builds a team. That's so true. And uh, you know, uh, one thing that I, you know I've always heard is the idea of genius around, which means you know always hire people that are smarter than you are. Oh, yeah. And you know that, yeah. and that way, you know, uh, you know, and, and they said, you know, a big part of the director director's job, it can be, you know, taken care of just by hiring a good, you know, having a, a great script. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Having a great cinematographer, and then having great actors, and then you know, you you pretty much, you know, it's only yours to mess up from there. 
Right, right. I mean, as, if I were to go direct the phone right now, I would have no idea, you know, well, what kind of lighting am I going to use or what's the right terminology for, for this piece of lighting or that piece of lighting or this, this lens or that lens. I would have no idea at all. I, you know, I, I might have, you know, a very, very, very basic idea. But, I mean, that's, again, that's the thing. I, um, uh, you know, it, it would be a matter of, of really kind of surrounding yourself with people who, who know what their, what their tasks are. That's they they know their strengths. So you're you're trying to put together a team. Well, not everybody has the same strengths, but because you put together a team, now you're you're a pretty badass team. And uh, and it's just your your job to make sure that that it all kind of comes together in the way that you want it. And you keep pushing until you know you get you get what you want. Yeah, yeah, very well said. And Thanks. and um. Yeah, our next question is, uh, Alvaro, uh, what advice could you give for someone trying to break into Hollywood? Uh, no, I always felt guilty about that question because, you know, I didn't, um, you know, in a lot of ways I haven't broken into Hollywood. Um, and what I have done is, you know, been able to to um, to work with uh, with Robert on many many projects. I'm out. I'm working with other with other people on other projects and, and getting other things off the ground, features and stuff like that. But um, you know, obviously, it, I feel like I I had a, a you know a, a huge door open up for me that I I scrambled to as quickly as possible. But I. At the same time, uh, you know, you, you mentioned the you know, 20 years of filmmaking experience, but a lot of those years I wasn't making films. A lot of those years I, I was not I was not as involved as I as I could have been. Uh, I I never really kind of took the bull by the horns and said, you know, I'm going to go to L.A. and I'm going to try to, you know, uh, work my way into the system. And uh, you know, everything has a time and place. But um, I would say that you know. Uh, to kind of follow up with Virginia Surrounds ideas is to try, you know, is there's so much in this, in my experience at least, I don't know if I can speak to the business, but I, I'll definitely say in my experience that you cannot undervalue the power of relationships. Um, and every, every time that, that I have, uh, have had any kind of, of, of success, any kind of forward movement, it's always been built upon relationships and meeting, putting yourself in the space where you can meet people and 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 find common interests and and things that you can do. I mean, one of the huge things for me was when Machete came out uh, in 2010. I was invited to be a panelist at the Austin Film Festival, and I really, literally was the guy chained to the laptop in the basement for such a long time. Even though I'd been already done Festival on three and eight years earlier. Um, I was suddenly, you know, up on, on stage, you know, doing panels with real working professional screenwriters that I had somehow climbed into thinking I was one of them. And, uh, you know, it, it, it really opened a lot of doors for me because I became instant friends with a lot of people I'm still friends with today that have helped me in so many ways. Um, uh, in the times that, you know, that I would go to California and, you know, and try to set up, you know, meetings, you know, from the point the plane landed going up coffee with one guy says, Oh, you need to go talk to this guy. So you should meet this person and then coffee and breakfast and lunch and drinks and dinners and, you know, after things and just like really networking, putting your best foot forward, you know, uh, and being a, being a, um, uh, a bridge builder 
and uh, and trying to you know to find those things you know find the ways that that uh, that that will help you get where you want to be you know and I found that you know having boots on the ground in California and Los Angeles especially there's always has been uh, over the last couple of years especially there's been a huge huge for me it's almost like uncanny just a sort of chain of chain of things that you know someone I didn't know you know last week two weeks later was saying, you know, um, I would like to, you know, work on a project with you, or would you like to be involved in this? Or, you know, would you, would you give me some ideas about this? And then something happens, you know, um, it's just, uh, it's pretty amazing. But I think that's the thing is that you, you've got to put yourself in the position to create that kind of environment, you know? Uh, so, you know, if it means starting, starting small and it means starting in a local writer's group, then do that. And find the find the people in the writers group that you really um, compliment uh, with an E, not an I, but you know that 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 are you know that bring something to the table that you don't. Maybe you can work with them, or maybe they're going to work with you, um, and uh, and just start you know really start building building your relationships as you're building your own talent and building your own skills, um, and then you know it's just push. And you know, I think that's the thing. It's push as much as as much as you can. Um, I don't know. I don't know what else to say about it. Um, and I just wish you, you know, I wish everybody good luck. And you know, we're in, we're living in an age right now where the demand for content I don't think has ever been as high as it is right now. The opportunities have never been as plentiful as they are right now. I mean, in in a, in a lot of ways. And um, and I think that that just sort of the willingness to to say I'm ready I'm ready to work I'm ready for for to, you know I'm ready to take this to the next step um, and and throwing yourself in the mix is is as good advice as, as I, I think I can give. And, you know, uh, again, you know, you touched on networking meetings and, you know, just finding out what you can do for people and being a bridge builder. And, you know, again, I, I think that's key. Um, not sort of so much asking what other people can do for you, but you, what you can do for other people. Um, oh, because, you know, people don't want to, you know, be sold to constantly. It's like, you know, like when I talk to people about social media to Alvarez, uh, Alvarez um, they, I always tell people, you know, don't constantly promote yourself. You know, don't constantly talk about this. You know, because um, right. that's just a turnoff. No, no one's going to follow you just to hear all about right. you constantly. Right, right. Oh, well, that's true. I mean, I think that's the thing that you know, social media is still in its infancy in a lot of ways, and uh, and that that is a lesson that people are quickly learning. Uh, I'm learning it too. And uh, you know, I think that there's this. The the thing about social media is to really kind of I, I think if you try to use it in, in, in you know in your in your best interest, it's not always to, to be self promoting, but to be sharing. You know, to share other people's successes, you know. Um and and promoting other people's other people's projects and stuff like that. So when someone, you know, a friend of mine posts, oh, you know, my friends are trying, you know, I have a Kickstarter, they're really trying to get this project off the ground, you know, if I have twenty bucks, I'll throw it into the also, I've never met these other guys. They're friends or my friends. You know, I'll throw in the money and I'll promote it on my Facebook page or whatever. If I, you know, if I if I can do that, um, um, you know, I just, uh, you know, you, I want to share. You know, whenever I do social media stuff, whether it's like Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or whatever, you know, um, 
there, you know, you can be a navel gazer and you can just be all about me, me, me. And I definitely do some of that and say, oh, look, you know, here I am in the writing room and I'm, you know, in some semi-exotic location in Los Angeles or whatever. Um, and or, or I'm saying, you know, you need to be watching this show, American Crime. It's the greatest show on television right now, and people are really going to dig it. Uh, because I have friends that are active on the show, friends with guys who made the show, and it's just like, you know, that's the kind of thing that, that I'd like to do. And just try to, you know, try to, um, you know, to, to, to kind of spread the goodwill. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and, you know, you just like, there's so many people that, and so many connections that you can make. I mean, I've never met you in person. I only know you from uh, from Twitter and things like that. And you know, I wouldn't be doing this podcast with you, if, you know, otherwise, you know. Um, so I'm, and 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 uh, you know, it's it's an amazing tool, and it can it can it can build relationships. It can it can uh, connect people together in ways that they you know would have, would have been impossible ten years ago. So uh, I think that's great. Yeah, and, and I find a lot of guests through Twitter too, because that's how I, I think we initially met. And then, yeah. um, and then now, yeah, you're right. It's you know, and uh, using Twitter as a networking tool has been awesome for me. Um, just meeting people and just seeing what they're working on and stuff like that. Um, I've actually tinkered around about actually writing a book about how how I use Twitter as a networking tool. Um, I think it's a great idea. Oh, thank I'll you. I'll definitely tweet about it. <laughs> We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Well, thank you. Uh, it's it's on, it's on my pile, uh, Alvaro, of like, you know, the 8 million things on my, I want to write. It's like, okay, that's a good idea. Maybe I should do that. Um, yeah. You know, it's it's one of those things, you know, uh, I might get around to someday. Right now, you know, I'm, I'm just focusing on some other actual writing things. Um, yeah. But, um, but, you know, we've been talking for about, you know, an hour and, and 18 minutes or so. So, you know, okay. in, you know, and, and I know, you know, you're busy and you, you know, I don't want to keep you too much longer. So, you know, in closing, is there anything that we didn't discuss that, you know, you wanted to mention or talk about? Uh, I think we covered it. I just, you know, I, I would just say that, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, like, like I said, I, I'm, I, I feel like, I'm uh, I'm not maybe not I'm the last person to give advice, but uh, but you know because I still feel like I, I'm I mean I'm I'm trying to be learning every day I'm trying to keep that 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 perspective on everything, uh, but I know that there's things that I picked up that if I can impart to someone else uh, and they can get something out of it, you know I think that's great. I mean it's like. Uh, um, you know, use what you can use and, you know, uh, what you can't use, just throw it away, you know? Um, and I think that's the same thing that so many of the, so many of the things that are out there for, for aspiring writers or, or, you know, writers that are trying to break into the business, um, you know, uh, but, uh, you know, just because you, you know, you've read it in a book or it's, you know, it, it, you've got to make the experience valuable for yourself, you know? I did teach for a short while. I taught a course at Texas A&M in Galveston, uh, a study skills course of all things. And I had the students read this bit from a Herman Melville novel that nobody reads anymore called Redburn, about a boy's first journey to sea. And he's taking his, uh, he's going to Liverpool. 
and he's taking his father's guidebook to Liverpool. And when he gets to the city and he opens up the guidebook, he realizes the city has changed. And, that you know, his father's guidebook really wasn't that much helpful to him anymore. And he had to sort of find his own way in, in the city. There were some things that were the same. And there was some sort of landmark, but the city had changed. And I think that, you know, the, the, the lesson I was trying to impart at that time, it's like, you know, I'm giving you a lot of ideas about how to kind of manage your time, how to study, how to, how to work in groups, how to do all these things. You know, you might find that some of it, most of it is useless to you. You've got to find what works and not be afraid of trying new things and uh, of, uh, of being open to experiences and, and really trying to, to build on uh, build on, on, on your base and, uh, and never sit back on it and, and say, you know, I know it all and, uh, and, and, um, and people will just have to recognize my genius, you know, uh, that uh, it's, a, it's a constant, it's a constant uh, learning process and I'm still doing it. So uh, I wish everybody that's uh, listening and trying to do those things the best of, the best of luck in doing them. Yeah, very cool, and you know that's a very, uh, very awesome positive message, Alvaro. Um, Thanks. Very it's all about the positive, <laughs> and that's that's good. It's good to be about the positive, because um, you know there's far too many negative people in this world. Um, so you know, you know, yeah. I, I, you know, Alvaro, I want to say thanks, thank you very much again for coming on. Uh, well, thank you, I really appreciate it. Oh, you know, my pleasure's all mine. Uh, so you know, where can people find you at online? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Alrods, A-L-R-O-D-Z. Uh, I'm on uh, Facebook, I think it's the same thing, at Alrods. Um, uh, I don't know, you'll find me around. I don't have a site or anything like that. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm uh, often doing, you know, different events. I'm not really doing anything at South by, but every year I'm... I'm pretty active with the Austin Film Festival, doing panels and roundtables, and and you know every October you can definitely find me around there. Um, but uh, you know, um, you know, look look me up and keep an eye out on, on El Rey Network for Festival uh, Dawn Season Two later this year. And hopefully, uh, we've got some good stuff in store for for fans of the show. And uh, you know, the original, the first uh, season is a. Uh, is already on uh, Netflix in its entirety, or if you're like uh, you know really into it, you can you can get the Blu-ray uh, or DVD set with all the extras and the commentaries and fun stuff like that. And you know, and I'll also I'll make sure to link to everything in the show notes as well. So uh, you know, everyone, if you you know. If uh, uh, you don't ever have been to El Ray Network or you've never actually you know seen a, uh, uh, Alvaro's Twitter, just look, click on the show. Just click on the uh, links in the show notes, and you'll be taken right there. And uh, also, I'm also going to link to uh, Dust Till Dawn season one. So again, if you haven't checked that out yet, uh, please do because uh, it's very cool. Especially if you have enjoyed the 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 uh, movie it's based off of. And again, yeah. it, like you know, Alvaro, uh, Alvaro and I have said, it just expands upon that. So uh, you know, in closing, everyone. Uh, thanks again for listening. You can find me at DaveBullis.com and Twitter. It's at DaveBullis, uh, excuse me, at Dave underscore Bullis. And, you know, um, uh, there's, you know, tons of show note links that if you want to, you know, stalk me on any other social media sites, they're there as well. And um, cool. <laughs> uh, so cool. Alvaro, thank you again, buddy. And, uh, you know, I wish you the best of luck with, you know, season two of Dust Till Dawn. And, uh, you know, if you ever want to come back, man, please let me know. The door is always wide open. Thanks a lot, Dave. I really appreciate it. Good talking to you. Yeah, good talking to you too, bud. All right. Take care. Have a good night, buddy. Bye-bye.
I want to thank Dave so much for doing such a great job on this episode. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at IndieFilmMuscle.com forward slash seven. So eight. Thank you again so much for listening, guys. As always, keep that hustle going. Keep that dream alive. Stay safe out there. And I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Indie Film Hustle podcast at IndieFilmHustle.com. That's I-N-D-I-E-F-I-L-M-H-U-S-T-L-E.com.